All right. John chapter 3, and we are in, let's see, yeah, verse 22. So can anyone remind us who was here Wednesday? What, what did we cover on Wednesday? What kind of stuff happened in the last passage? Anybody remember? Yeah, Adeline? Yeah, so Nicodemus talks to Jesus. Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And then we get to that really famous passage, John three sixteen through 21. How many of you were encouraged not just by John? How many of you were encouraged by John three sixteen? Reminder of John three sixteen. How about 17 through 21? You're like, man, there's, we should have just kept reading. We memorized John three sixteen. We should have kept memorizing. Some of us said that in our, in our small group. But yeah, good stuff in that whole passage there. And so we're picking up in John 3.22, and a couple things before we start. This is where we hear from John the Baptist again, okay? And John the Baptist, we've already heard a couple times in the Gospel of John, and he says some of the same stuff that he's already said. So why would John the Gospel writer put repetition in here? Well, One thing that I want us to be aware of, and this is helpful for me as I think about the Gospel of John, is that John ends his Gospel by saying that there's so much that he's left out from the story of Jesus that even if everything Jesus did was written down, all the books in the world couldn't contain everything that Jesus did. Now, what does that tell you about John's Gospel? Well, what it tells me is that he is being very selective in what he puts in his gospel. So John is not telling us the same thing about John the Baptist just for repetition's sake. There's a reason that he would put John back in the story. Does that make sense? Okay, so all that says is that when we get to this passage about John the Baptist that might sound a little bit repetitive, there's something in this that he wants us to see about John the Baptist because He had to leave out so much stuff that it could fill all the books in the world. So if he chose to put it in, it's in there for a reason, okay? So let's read. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, we'll learn in chapter 4, verse 2, that although Jesus himself did not baptize, it was only his disciples. So when it says Jesus was baptizing, it was his disciples who were baptizing. So verse 23, John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. So if you guys know John's fate, what ends up happening to John the Baptist? Gets his head cut off, right? So he's put in prison, head gets cut off, all right? So verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who was the bride is who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and he has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We've got a little video clip here to kick us off, okay? Thanks, buddy. 
when Ben Stiller comes back and says, you're the whole package, you Jack. Okay, so that is the intro into our passage. <laughs> well, how can you skip that whole clip? Okay, there is, maybe I'm the only one who thought that was funny. Okay, so, huge Ackman, huge Ackman. You're the whole package. So have you guys ever met someone who is the best version of what you would wish to be? I kind of think that he might not really be acting there, Ben Stiller, because Ben Stiller, you know, he's, he's an okay actor. He's kind of in some goofy movies. Hugh Jackman is kind of a bigger deal, right? Or Hugh Jackman, as we will now call him from here on forth. Um, so who would you like to be like? Um, okay, I'm, I'm having trouble transitioning from the video. Here we go. <laughs> sermon time, sermon time. Here we go. Um, so... Have you ever met someone who is a better version of you? Okay, so there's someone out there that when you think of, oh, I wish I could be that, who do you think of? Okay, uh, anybody want to give an answer? <laughs> Drew is unique. Okay, so you're just you. But we tend to have someone that we wish we could be like, and unchecked this admiration, this desire to be like someone, what can happen is it can start to turn towards resentment, right? We can actually be embittered and resent someone because they are the version of ourselves that we wish we could be, but we come to the realization that we're not going to be, okay? Um, Whether it's looks or talent, um, right? So that is kind of launching us into our passage for today, okay? So our passage is going to go, we're going to go through it in three points, okay? So the first point is there is a perceived problem, a perceived problem, okay? So let's read back in verse 22. So Jesus, his disciples, they're in Judean Galilee uh, countryside, they're baptizing, and if you can picture it, there's basically like two baptism groups happening right now. There's Jesus' disciples baptizing, and there are John's disciples who are baptizing, okay? And then in verse 25, we hear that a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. That's all we know. And we know that baptism back in this day was something that people were doing, but it was kind of this transition between Jewish purification rites, things that Jews would do to be purified, and what Jesus made it into. In other words, Jesus and John the Baptist, when they started baptizing people, they were taking something that some people were doing, and they were kind of giving new meaning to it, if that makes sense, right? So there's actually this group called the Essenes, and they were these like desert Jewish community and they lived out in the desert. You can actually go and still visit some of the camps where they lived. And there were these bathtubs with steps that would go in down one side and steps that would come out the other side. And they would go and they would baptize themselves every day or every meal or things like that. And it was a way of being purified, okay? Yet John took it and John would baptize people for the the forgiveness of sins, right? To come and repent of your sins, Right? Maybe not the forgiveness of sins, but to show their repentance of sins. Um, 
And then Jesus is taking this baptism. So what we know is there's this discussion of a Jew and John's disciples. And we kind of have to read between the lines a little bit. But what my guess is, is this Jew is coming and he's trying to put it all together. He's saying, okay, I know about purification. I know about baptisms because you guys are doing it, right? And, and I've seen other people do it. But I don't understand that there's your group doing baptism here and there's Jesus' group doing baptism here. And it seems like Jesus' group is a lot more popular than your group. So which way should I go? Where do I need to go and get baptized? That's kind of my guess at what he's wondering. So because of this discussion, John's disciples in verse 26, it says they, this is John's disciples, they came to John and here's what they said. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, a.k.a. Jesus, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So we have the scene, the discussion that took place between the Jew and the disciples, and now the disciples come to John with a complaint, okay? And here's the complaint. Everyone is going to Jesus to get baptized. Now, we know it wasn't really everyone because it says at the beginning that some were still coming to John to get baptized. But they're basically saying, everyone is switching teams, John. What's the deal? The one that you talked to us about, the one that you bore witness about, and I think they might be saying, you know, you introduced Jesus. He didn't introduce you. You're older than Jesus. You're, Jesus came after you. You're not coming after him. So people should be coming to us. They should be coming to John to get baptized. And this is a complaint that they have to John the Baptist. And when we hear that, and we know the big picture, we can say, what is the heart behind the complaint? Well, it sure seems like there's some resentment there. There's some bitterness there. They are embittered and resenting Jesus on John's behalf. And they're wanting to get John riled up a little bit here. Like, John, give us an answer as to why everyone is going over to Jesus. So how is John going to respond? That's the big question. So the second point is John, the joy of John the Baptist. And here's why I think John the Evangelist puts this in his gospel. Because John the Baptist's response to his disciples is so mind-blowingly otherworldly and unhuman that we need to hear it and we need to see it and we need to follow his example, okay? So let's read verse 27. Look down at your Bible there. Okay, we want to follow along. So first point, John knows where everything comes from. John says in verse 27, and they came to John and said to him, blah, 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 blah. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Let's stop there. What does that mean? You can't receive anything unless it's given to you from heaven. I think John is stating kind of a life principle here, a helpful orientation that we as creatures need to have, which is this. Everything you have, everything that you are, everything that you've done, it's only because God has given it to you to have and to be and to do. Do you guys believe that? Okay, sometimes we forget the fact that simply the fact 
that we were born into a certain country and to certain parents gave us certain opportunities that other people never would have had. So God has put you in a place. He's given you every single thing that you have so that when someone comes to you and says to you, you deserve more credit for this, you should say, what have I done or who am I that I haven't received? Everything that I am, everything that I do has been given to me by a sovereign God. That's, that's John's perspective on life. So for John, the Bible tells us that John is the highest prophet. He has the highest honor underneath Jesus because he is the prophet who didn't just deliver God's word. He is the prophet who didn't just say, here's what God says to you. He is the prophet who had the honor of saying, God is coming to visit you and I am going to introduce him to you. That was John's role. So John's role was to say, there is God in the flesh come to save you. And so he is the highest prophet. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew that of all the prophets, none were greater than John. So John has this huge honor and John responds by saying, it was given to me. What do I have that I didn't receive? John recognizes that even though he considered by Jesus Christ himself as the greatest of prophets other than Jesus, he's saying, I'm nothing. It's just the assignment that God gave to me. Now, I want you to think about this. What would John be implying? What would John be saying if he went along with his disciples here? His disciples are saying, hey, John, let's get up. Let's come on. Let's get a little upset about Jesus. Let's get a little embittered about the fact that everyone's going to Jesus's team. If John went along with that, it's like, yeah, you know what? You're right. I introduced him. I'm the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. They should be coming to me. Well, what John would be saying in essence is he'd be saying, you know what? I deserve more attention than God. I want people to come to me, not to God. How ridiculous is that, right? John knew who Jesus was, and he knew his place in history. So John knows where everything comes from. It comes from God. What do I have that I have not received? And John knows who he is not. That's the next verse. Verse 29, he says, or 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So despite the fact that he's being given this hugely important role, John knows that it was purely a role to be carried out for God's glory. It wasn't for his glory that he was told to announce the Christ. He recognizes the distance between Christ and not Christ. And the question is, do we? Do we recognize the difference, the distance between Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's servants, even the greatest of his servants, the greatest of his prophets? John did, and he, he keeps drawing attention to it. He's just another servant, just like you, just like me. He's just another servant, just like Billy Graham or Daryl Worley or every follower of Jesus Christ whose name you will never, ever hear. John puts him in the category of not Jesus Christ. Everybody else, not Jesus Christ. And then 
Jesus' popularity, it brings two responses from John, okay? The responses are joy and humble exaltation, okay? So let's, let's look at verse 29 first. Here's what John says. John then uses a little bit of a story, a little parable, a little analogy, a little picture for us. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now, we don't use the word bridegroom anymore. We just use groom, but it's the same thing, okay? So the one who has the bride is the groom. Well, first of all, what's he talking about there? Well, who, who is the bride? The bride is God's people, okay? We, we've studied that in Ephesians, haven't we? How the church is called the bride. Well, long before the church was called the bride, Israel was called the bride. So if you look at Isaiah, it says... The bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So God is the groom. His people are the bride. All the people are going where? They're all going to Jesus. And so he is simply saying the bride goes to the groom. The bride is going to their groom. Okay? The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And then he says the friend of the bridegroom... Now he's talking about himself, and he's putting himself in the shoes kind of of this, the best man, if you can picture it, in a wedding. He's the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In other words, when you're at a wedding, and, and the groom and the bride come together, right, and for us, in our context, it's, you know, they kiss, they're married, that's when the celebration starts, right? That's when you say, they, they did it, they're married, hooray, and we're all so happy, we're going to go party for them, right? And so he's saying, as the best man, my greatest joy is to see the bride going with the groom. Now, pause for a minute. Think of how scandalous it would be if, let's say, the bride came to the wedding and she went after someone other than the groom on her wedding day. Scandalous, right? If she kind of gave the groom the cold shoulder and was chatting it up with other guys and things like that during her own wedding, that'd be scandalous. And how scandalous would it be if the best man was kind of hitting on the bride during the wedding, flirting with her, trying to see if you know, maybe he could win her over at the last minute? That'd be pretty scandalous. And both of those things are what would happen if, the peop- if John said, I am bitter that the people are going to Jesus. That's basically what he'd be saying. He'd be saying, I wish the bride would be coming with the bridegroom. I wish the bride would be hitting on the bridegroom and the bridegroom hitting on the bride. And it would be absolutely scandalous, especially knowing that the groom is God who is coming for his people whom he has created and loved and is going to die for, Right? So thankfully, John doesn't do that. Instead, John says, it is my greatest joy to see all the people that were flocking. Think about the fame that John had. All these people coming from everywhere to be baptized. It is my greatest joy to be standing in this river all by myself and seeing nobody around me. That's his perspective. Okay? It was actually the role of the best man to help prepare the wedding in in Jesus' day. So the best man literally would have been his joy to see the wedding go off without a hitch and then to see the bride and groom run off on a, on a happy honeymoon and be left standing on the church steps all by himself. That would have been his joy to know that everything went without a hitch and now they're happily married. And that's exactly what John is saying. He's saying, it completes my joy 
to know that I came, I pointed that Christ was here, I prepared the way for him, and now everybody's going after him, and I'm standing here all by myself. And God is going to, within a few years, God is going to take John, have him arrested, and have his head cut off. That's John's story. He fulfilled the role that he was given by God. And then he ends with this verse, this last saying, okay, which I I think is humble exaltation. He says, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. My joy is complete in the knowledge that people are chasing after Jesus and they're forgetting my name. Nobody's going to remember me. And that'd be fine with John the Baptist. But of course, we do remember him because of his role that he played in introducing God. So the question for us is this. How do we get to that same point? I think this is why this passage is here. How do we get to joyful and humble exaltation of Jesus? Joyfully saying, I want people to know more about Jesus than they know about me. I want people to care way more about Jesus than they care about me. How do we get there? Well, we're going to do a little, I'm going to ask you guys to do that part, okay? And um, we're calling this point, What John Knew. So in your pairs, just three people, two people next to you, you're going to read the next paragraph, and you're going to make a list of answers, we're going to put them on the board here, um, to this question. What did John know about Jesus, about himself, and about us that led him to this response, okay? So in that next paragraph, verse 31 to 36, Go ahead and start brainstorming. You can even move your chairs if you want. Um, I'll give you the next five minutes here to do that. All right. Well, help me out. What do you guys, what do you guys think here? Well, we'll jot some ideas down here. So tell me something that you got from that passage in one of the three categories here. Aaron, yeah. Okay, so we know that he knows about Jesus, that he is above all. Good. What else do we know from this passage? Any of the categories, anywhere? Yeah? That um, John acknowledges that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So he's a servant, but he's not the Christ. Okay. So he knows he's not the Christ. Okay. All right, we're going to just go group by group, okay? So girls group here, Sarah, Haley, and Melissa. Okay, so where would, I, where would you put that? Know about us, okay? And John, we could actually put it in the middle here, okay? So read the phrase again for me. Um, in verse 30, in verses 32 and 33, am 
not sure which category within. I think it might go in about us because it says he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Okay. So no one accepts, no one receives his testimony. And then whoever receives his testimony, we'll just say proves God is truth. Okay, is that a head scratcher for anyone in here? No one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony. That's kind of confusing, right? Okay, we'll come back to that. Anything else that we can to fill this in? Up here? Uh, Jesus, uh, he utters the words of God. Okay, so Jesus utters the words of God. Okay, I forgot I was going in order. You guys have anything? So how does this list, do you guys remember why we asked this question? The question was, how do we get this joy and this humble exaltation when Jesus gets the glory and we don't? Well, we get it by knowing who Jesus is and who we are, right? That's what we see right here. So we know Jesus is from heaven. Jesus is above all from Jesus' mouth come the very words of God. Jesus has God's spirit without measure. That means he has a limitless supply of God's spirit in order to give out to us. He has the full extent of the Father's love upon him. All things have been put into Jesus' hands. That's who Jesus is. And who are we? Well, we are those who belong to the earth and we speak in earthly ways. Jesus said earlier to uh, 
to Nicodemus. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And it's kind of that same question should be ringing in our ears. Like, you want to listen to me? You want people to flock to me, someone who's been created, who speaks in an earthly way, when the other option is listening to Jesus, who is from heaven and speaks in a heavenly way? All right, those are the options. So go to Jesus. John is saying, all right? Okay, we got to wind things up here. So where do we go from here? Let's, let's end with a quick question. Is someone knocking on the window? Oh, I bet it's the two- and three-year-old's room. Someone's hammering away at the wall back there. There we go. That's what it is. At some point, a miniature person is going to break through that wall. And I, I think we should agree just to applaud them, really, because that is just great accomplishment for that age group. So... Even if it's destructive, I'm proud of them. It probably will be my daughter making her way through. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we're past time, so here we go. Let's finish up. Two questions, two, two, two applications, okay? Obviously, this book is written that we might believe. Okay, so the whole point that John keeps getting at is believe in Jesus. And here he ends this passage by saying, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So in this chapter 3, he has gone from saying, if you don't believe in Jesus, you will perish. If you don't believe in Jesus, you are condemned already. And here he says, if you don't believe in Jesus, God's wrath is upon you. There are two positions that we can have in life. The position of being obedient to Jesus and having life, an eternal life after we die, or the position of ignoring Jesus and being under God's wrath. So do you believe in Jesus? Are you following the one who is from above, from heaven, who is above all, who when he speaks, he speaks the word of God? When he has, this is the one who has seen and heard and witnessed God's throne room. He stood in God's throne room from before time began. He created the world. He reigns now. He has a limitless supply of God's spirit. He is perfectly loved by God. He has all things given into his hands by God. Is this who you are believing in and following, or are you believing in and following something from this earth? The opinions of friends, fads, culture, earthly things, my own heart, my own desires... Have you believed in Jesus? And if you have believed in Jesus, here's where John the Baptist really helps us out, have you accepted the role that he's given you? Are you content with the role that he has given you in his kingdom? Primarily, the role of making Jesus great and yourself nothing. This is really important. I'm especially speaking to those who are going on a mission trip, those of you who share Christ with friends at school. When it comes to evangelism and missions, it is incredibly important. Are we seeking the glory of the groom or are we seeking our own glory? Do we long for people at the end of camp, at the end of a trip, at the end of leading someone to Christ do we long for people to say, God is great? Or do we kind of hope they'll say, you are great. 
thank you for your role in my life. What is it that we kind of hope to hear? When we come back from a missions trip, do we, do we get up on the stage and, and kind of feel tickled pink that finally we're up on the stage and we get the microphone and we get to tell stories about the funny and fun things that we did? Or do we get up on the stage with the heart that says, I just want you to know how amazing God is and what God has done in our trip and in our hearts and the hearts of those um, that we were working with. So to put it in the terms we've already said, do we seek the glory of the groom? Are we hoping that he gets the bride? Or are we flirting with the bride at the wedding? Do we get up on stage? And this is something that I as a pastor, I and mean, this is huge for me. When I get up on stage and speak, if there's any inkling of me saying, I hope that people say, man, he's a great preacher. I could listen to that guy all day long. All I'm really doing is flirting with the bride. When in reality, I ought to be saying, you need to go to Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. So how are we doing at that when it comes to our lives? Let's pray that God would help us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and for this word for us. And help us, Lord, to be people who joyfully and humbly exalt you and with a true heart can say you must increase i must decrease and that we would take active steps in that every step of our life every day of our life we pray this in jesus name amen